Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we're going to Markham, Ontario, to a neighbor a couple of doors away, to Ms. Margaret Calvert, a former teacher and now a very strong advocate in several areas. So welcome, Margaret. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. Okay. Margaret, let's start with your academic background, post-secondary. Where did you go to school? Oh, well, I grew up in Winnipeg, so my my high school uh, was in Winnipeg. And then I did some uh, studies at the University of Manitoba, but then I moved to Ontario. Then I ended up transferring to U of T, and I ended up transferring to York University as I moved about. So I ended up with a BA uh, in psychology uh, from York University. Okay, so U of T, for those listeners who don't know, is University of Toronto. Right. Okay. And somehow you ended up moving into teaching. How did you do that? Oh, I started out, I was a teacher in Winnipeg. Um, Right after high school, I could go to uh, teacher's college and uh, then work on my university degree if I chose afterwards, which I chose to do. So I went right after uh, my grade, um, I would say grade 12, which was considered then to be first year university. So I ended up going to the uh, Manitoba Teachers College, which was then called, if you can believe it, the Manitoba Normal School. So that was the uh, title. I graduated there as a teacher and I was working in Winnipeg and then we moved here to Ontario. And uh, so after I finished uh, my undergraduate at York University, I continued on and got a Bachelor of Education degree. And then that was followed by many university professional courses in areas of specialty that I wanted to pursue. So I'm a specialist in primary education, a specialist in English as a second language, and have several other university credits as well all probably equivalent to being about a master's degree. So you're obviously a lifelong learner. I'm a lifelong learner. Yes, I am. Okay, so let's move into your work career. Where did that start besides Winnipeg? Uh, Well, I worked in Winnipeg, and then I moved to Toronto and worked for the former North York Board of Education. And then I started having babies. So uh, I was fortunate that I could stay home. I did some occasional work at that time, but I basically stayed home. And we had um, three children, and I stayed home until they were old enough that I could go back to work. And um, by then I was living in York region, so I went back to work full time for the York Region Board of Education. I had done a lot of um, interim supply work for North York 
as well as York Region. But I ended up getting a position in York Region Board of Education. And again, uh, in the primary area, because my specialty is primary education. So I worked in primary education for a number of years. Then I transitioned to working into um, English as a second language because I found it absolutely fascinating how children would learn the languages so readily. And it was really an, an exciting opportunity. So I worked into uh, that and ended up being full-time English as a second language teacher, working with primary and intermediate grades. Then after my husband retired, we had the opportunity to go to Malaysia and we went there for three years and I was the principal of an English as a second language school there for three years. Okay, so Malaysia and in terms of York region, what city or town did you work? Oh, I worked actually in um, York Region. I was at uh, Unionville and I was at Doncrest. Those are two schools that I worked at. Okay. So Malaysia, who were your students there? Oh, my students there were students, mostly Malaysian students who wanted to improve their English because their secondary diploma wasn't recognized around the world. And uh, they, my husband was working with what offered at that point the um, Ontario curriculum, the final year, the grade 13 year. And so he had the position of principal in the school for the students, but the students had to speak English because all the courses were delivered in English. So they came to my school, but they also, uh, drew students uh, that school from Vietnam, all over Asia, and even the Middle East. So we had a really international group of students, and I was responsible then for all of that. And those were from children right through to um, mature adults who wanted to improve their English for business purposes. So it was a very, very, very age group and very varied clientele from really all over the world. It's a very fascinating experience. So it must have been very rewarding for you, though. Well, it was, it was. And it was interesting to see the progress that people made. Uh, but they, they had a purpose. And I guess that's true in life. If, if you have a purpose and a goal in mind, you really are diligent and you work hard because the uh, people who were doing it for business purposes wanted it because they had to converse in English with several of their clients. And the students, of course, were wanting it because they wanted to get into, um, first of all, the academic program run by the college for the grade 13 diploma. And once they had that grade 13 diploma, they were free to go anywhere in the world because the Ontario secondary diploma is recognized worldwide. So those students ended up going to Australia, they ended up going to New Zealand, they ended up going to England, they ended up coming to Canada. 
all for their university, for their education. Very interesting. So how did you adapt to living in that country? Well, it takes a lot of... Um, uh, it's interesting because it was a, a, it's on the tropics. It's right on the equator. So the heat is a big problem, and it's not something we're used to. We're dealing with the heat and humidity all the time. But it's um, if you go somewhere where you are a visitor, you just go along with the culture of the country and observe and um, basically enjoy it. Uh, it. Because the Malaysian culture is a blend of uh, not only the, it's the Chinese, uh, it's the Indians, and it's the, um, the Malays. So it's a very interesting culture blend of three different, um, totally different cultures. So how did you adapt to the language? Oh, it's, uh, the language is, is um, people there who grew up there speak the Bahasa Malay, which is a, a combination made up language so that all the different groups, the ethnic groups can converse in what everybody learns English. So that's how, I mean, English was spoken everywhere. Okay. So you retired from teaching, and over the last few years, several years actually, you become an advocate for several areas. So let's start, say, with the first one. Um, well, I... My husband is in, uh, was in long-term care, and he went into long-term care in 2009 because of his dementia, probably Alzheimer's. He was diagnosed in actually 2003, and we, we kept him at home for a long time, but his dementia developed into personality traits of um, aggression and it was very very difficult so he did go into the long-term care in 2009 and it takes about two years and I think to figure out what's going on in long-term care it's a very different system uh, in Ontario maybe from other places although there are many many similarities my husband's facility uh, was a not-for-profit, but privately owned. It's very small, 96 residents. So after you're there for a while and you start looking at things, um, the first thing I noticed was the, the pharmacy bills. <laughs> and why um, I'm very aware of everything, and every month I would read the pharmacy statements that would come out, and the pharmacies are very specialized pharmacies that only deal in long-term care. They don't have any other, like a storefront business or anything. And it turns out that they are controlled by major companies. In my husband's case, uh, the pharmacy was actually a subsidiary of Shoppers Drug Mart, which is a huge drug chain, which subsequently was sold to um, Loblaws, and it's still the same pharmacy. But they were charging and being paid by the government $5.59 to dispense 
every medication for every resident every week, every week. So you can imagine how the dispensing costs, it just, I couldn't believe it because I could go and get a three-month prescription for the dispensing fee perhaps of $4.11, never mind $5 and change for each week because they only dispense on a weekly basis because if the resident passes away, all those drugs would be wasted. Well, actually the cost of the drugs is minimal compared to the dispensing fees. And on top of all that, once a month, they would pick a week when the dispensing fee would jump to $7.59. And that $2 wasn't covered by the government. It was being passed on to family members. So then you would get a bill. And sometimes uh, family members note that their loved ones were on perhaps 10 prescription drugs. So they were getting an extra bill of $20 a month on top. And this unbelievable to me because the local pharmacies had all waived this $2 fee. So why was it that long-term care residents were having to pay this $2, this extra, when nobody else in the community was paying that. So that was my first, um, I guess, venture into that advocacy. It parallels my venture into advocacy for long-term care because they were running at the same time. So that ended up being a, re a big uh, report in the Toronto Star. And, um, the $2 was eventually prohibited by the government a couple of years later, but I did go down to the legislature, to Queen's Park, uh, a couple of occasions with other family members, making sure that the um, members of parliament knew that this was wrong. Why should the long-term care residents be paying this fee? And the government has now also changed that they aren't dispensing and getting paid $5.59 for every time. They're getting paid um, some kind of a rather large, I think, bed um, fee per resident per month, like a flat fee. So for some residents, they're going to make a lot of money because those residents don't require much money. Many, uh, many pharmacy um, items and the other residents, they may make less. But the pharmacies and long-term care are still an area which I believe um, needs to be thoroughly investigated because there are mega profits being made there by these huge companies. You cannot use your local pharmacists that you've always used once you go into long-term care in Ontario. You must use the pharmacy that that particular facility has contracted with. Now there's a whole other issue. We don't get to see the contract. We don't know anything about that contract. These, uh, this is public money, but these contracts are all secret. So every not-for-profit is bargaining to get a deal with 
some provider. Now, the provider offers goodies to in order to get the contracts because the contracts are very lucrative. And in the Toronto Star article, those were called bed fees. But they are still happening. And uh, this is all secret. Uh, but this is your public money in Ontario being paid for these secret contracts. And we're funding all of this. So this is another area that needs to be continually investigated. But it's um, certainly not on the radar right now. So it's a, a provincial problem as compared to a municipal problem, or is it a federal problem? No, no, this is all provincial because then uh, in Canada, everything is controlled. It's a meta, anything to do with health is a provincial issue. So that's why the provinces differ. So this is a provincial issue. It's something the government has to look at and they have to, um, I guess, really be strong against the lobbyists because that's where the money is coming from. The lobbyists are lobbying for these lucrative contracts, but the contracts in uh, long-term care are secret for every provider. And this is public money that's paying all these things. I think the books should be open. I think that everything should be open. I think that we should all family members should be able to go in and see you know where the contracts are going and how much they're costing because this is our money but everything is secret so that's another thing but uh, my issue goes back to when my husband went into long-term care I as I say it takes about two years to kind of figure out what's really going on and you have to be there. Uh, I, you know, family members who can't be there, then I would say hire somebody who can be there because family members are the ears and eyes. The residents are incapable. The majority of them, probably 90%, have the cognitive disability. They are unable to express their wishes, their express their point of views. They need an advocate. And when you're in there, I would suggest to family members, don't just sit in your loved one's room because you don't know what's going on. Get out into the units, sit in the common areas, sit in the TV room, sit by the nursing station, sit wherever it is, talk to the other residents, see what's going on, interact with the staff, then you really find out. And I, because I live very close to my husband's facility, was able to be there four or five hours a day at different times and at meal times. Um, yes, and that's when I could see that the problems were the ratio of staff. This was a secure dementia unit with wanderers and residents with aggressive, very aggressive behavior issues because those residents don't understand what's being said to them. They don't understand what they're supposed to do. If someone comes up and says, do you want blah, 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 they're just going to say no, because they have no idea what blah, 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 blah is. 
they have dementia, they have memory issues, but they have behavior issues. And the, in many cases, the behavior is just the result of their frustration and inability to communicate. So I could see all of this because in my husband's unit, there were only two personal support workers to do all of the care for 21 advanced dementia residents with behavior issues. So if you can, anybody who has any knowledge of dementia would know that a person with dementia and especially those with behavior and wandering issues, they almost need one-to-one -one care. But these poor personal support workers were having to do the bathing, the changing, the dressing, the feeding, on and on and on. Now, the staff were wonderful. Uh, they were just fantastic. It was very, very stable staff, full-time people who had a lot of experience, who had worked with those from, with dementia many, many years, and they were just fantastic. But the problems, they couldn't do it. It was impossible. So I worked with the previous administration and managed to get a, a third personal support worker added in the morning when the critical time is getting them up and getting them to the dining room, giving them breakfast and all of that. And then another four hour shift at the end of the day from five to nine. And, you know, it was just it was such a difference. And they were stable. They were the same people all the time. And it worked out. It was really working really, really well having the extras. But that wasn't enough. That still wasn't enough staff. And there was also a registered practical nurse. But uh, it's very much in the silos. The registered practical nurse does her job of administering medication and uh, doing that kind of thing, but rarely helped the personal support workers with their tasks. So, and Margaret, is dementia an illness or a disability or both? Oh, dementia. Well, dementia is an umbrella that covers many illnesses. The illnesses under it are um, various kinds of dementia, but it is, there are illnesses. They, um, there's Lewy body, there's vascular dementia, there's all kinds of, I think, more than 100 types of dementia caused by very many different things. So it is an illness. It's a, a mental illness, I would say, a brain disease a brain disease about which um, we're still trying to figure out how it's working because the brain is so complex. So, so it's it neurological is, and it's an it's I guess we don't know. Right. You know there are so many things we don't know whether there's a um, neurological, environmental. We we don't know. Nobody knows. They, so besides besides the situation, is there another area that you become an advocate? In the uh, yes, for certainly for advocating for my husband's uh, well-being, I had um, went on and on, and then the administration changed, and the first thing that the new administrator did was take away that third personal support worker in 2016, 
And not only that, the population really started changing. The people getting into long-term care because there's somewhere between 35 and 40,000 people on the wait list. You wait a long, long time. So your disabilities, your physical and mental disabilities are much more severe by the time you get to long-term care. So here we have uh, the complex needs of the residents, fewer, fewer um, staff, and not only that, the staff were changing. All of a sudden we were getting brand new hires that had no experience at all knew nothing about dementia, coming in, being put in there on a casual basis, one day here, one day there, agency staff. And the number of full-time staff decreased dramatically, and we are faced with a situation where we don't have continuity of care because they're faced with different people every day and people who have no experience, and we also only have two personal support workers to so, do everything. Margaret, we're in the process of an election right now. And in Ontario, there are four leaders that are running to be the premier of the province of Ontario. What would your message be as an advocate, not individually, but for all of them? For all of them, my message would be long-term care is a vital part of our health care system that has been totally ignored by successive governments for many, many years. Because of COVID, it has come into the public's view and people are outraged or people were outraged. People should still be outraged at what is happening because we need, first of all, we need to have accountability. We need to know where, never mind adding more funding, we need to know where the money that we are spending now, which could be in Ontario somewhere around $7 billion, where is that money being spent? And you will find, if you were to track it, I believe, that it's there's so much bureaucracy that gets it eaten all up. And by the time you get to the bottom, of this, let's say, an inverted pyramid at the point at the bottom, that's where the care and the residents are, there's nothing left because it's all being eaten up by the bureaucracy. And we don't know in accountability where individual facilities are spending the money. There doesn't seem to be accountability. There's great variation between facilities who get the same funding. There's great variation in their staffing levels. Why is that? So we need to have a provincial government that's willing to go in and change the system. And this is called a revolution by some. Uh, fixing it is not the word. It, we need a revolution because the system right now is task-oriented. What that means is that they are the personal support workers and the nurses are given tasks that they have to perform every day. For example, they have to measure the amount of liquid a person drinks in a day and record that. On every shift, the personal support workers and the nurses are spending one hour of their shift on documentation. 
one hour documenting how many times they, you know, changed a person, what the person ate, how much they ate. So, um, Margaret, that's, that's not the system that we need. We need what is called emotion, social care, where residents are the center and it's become, it's like a home. They call them homes. I don't use the word home because there's nothing home-like about it. They're dreary and drab and the residents just sit around by the hour staring into space with little or no activation. This is nothing like home. Dining rooms are locked. You know, they open five minutes before. You can't get a snack or a cup of tea in the middle of the day or anything at a time when they don't come around with it, which is about 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes. So we need to change the focus. We need to change the model of care. And that's what we need is a government that's willing to go in and make this a priority so that all of our loved ones in long-term care have the dignity and respect and quality of life that they so deserve. And that's going to be all of us coming along too. We want that. So Margaret, a final question. Yes. Uh, Is there one or more organizations that listeners could reach out to, to uh, get people like you to uh, connect to? I'm not sure uh, of the question because... Well, is, is, is there an organization? Uh, there are many organizations. No, no, that are advocates. There who, are advocates. who our listeners could reach out. Just one or Absolutely. two. Absolutely. There's a Seniors for Social Justice is one of the ones in Ontario. There's CARP. Uh, the Retired Teachers of on- Ontario, that association. Okay, CARP, we better many, explain. Many. CARP is Canadian Association of Retired People. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, there have been so many studies on long-term care, 40 okay. or 50 or whatever, but we need to get beyond this. And as far as my situation goes, I was banned and for 27 months was not allowed to be anywhere in that building pretty well, except for two rooms on the second floor. 